0: Our reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, verses 1 through 19. Turn in your Bibles. One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things, they said, Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it amongst themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. And so they answered, We don't know where it was from. And Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one was also beat and treated shamefully and was sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately, because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. May God be pleased with the reading of his word. If you only had a week to live, what would you do? If you had your health, but knew death was seven days away, how would you spend your time? you would probably engage in the things that were most important to you. Very few, I think, would keep working at their jobs, punching in at nine and out at five. But with a calling, it is different. There exists an urgency to fulfill one's calling even to the last days of life if possible. In what amounted to his last sermon at age 95, Billy Graham, though much slower, spoke the same gospel message as he had his whole life salvation in Christ when asked if he had a favorite hymn he immediately replied what a friend we have in Jesus such is a calling the Apostle Paul knew that burning drive to evangelize writing in Romans 1 14 and 15 that he was obligated and eager to preach the gospel That calling had become his life. In Philippians 1.21, he wrote, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In our passage today, in the last week of his life, and he knew it, we find Jesus teaching in the temple court. Jesus was fulfilling his calling as verse 1 shows, preaching the gospel he continued to do what was most important to him. From the beginning of his ministry, he had declared, as he said back in the synagogue in Luke 4:18, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. In effect, Jesus has now reclaimed the temple for its proper function as the house of God and the proclamation of his word and prayer. While preaching, he is approached by some chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders, whom question him. In fact, this chapter 20 is often referred to as the chapter of questions as Jesus fields questions from the leaders seeking to trap or discredit him. They ask, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? This group uh, comprised the Sanhedrin. Their authority rises in the case of priests, uh, by their birthright, teachers in their education, and elders in their being born into families of means. To them, Jesus had none of those qualifications and hence lacked the authority to do or say anything authoritative. Crowds, however, flocked to Jesus, whose preaching hope to the poor and an inclusion to the marginalized attracted them. Some had just hailed him as the Messiah King. As we have seen in the past, the gospel Jesus preached was revolutionary, turning the accepted views upside down so that sinners would enter the kingdom before the so-called righteous. As professor of New Testament at Ashbury Seminary, Joel Green, notes, the question they put to Jesus then is not an innocent one. Luke brings into focus a war of worlds, fundamentally different versions of God's purpose, the character of leadership, and the nature of Israel's redemption. Jesus counters their question with one of his own. I will ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it amongst themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. And so they answered, we don't know where it was from. While Jesus speaks of John's baptism, the implication is the entirety of John's ministry. John's message was one of repentance and judgment. He was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. These religious leaders had rejected John's ministry. In Matthew 3, starting verse 7, we read, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire I baptize you with water for repentance but after me comes one who is more powerful than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire the religious leader leaders again fell back onto their ancestry rather than faith in God and his Christ. Now presented with Jesus' question, they faced a dilemma. If they say John's ministry was from God, then they accuse themselves of guilt in not having been baptized and they stand self-condemned. Such an admittance would stick in their throats and discredit them before the people. On the other hand, if they say it was only of human origin. They fear that they would be stoned by the people who held John as a prophet. In their private discussion, they don't seek the truth, but what will protect their appearances and position. So rather than risk either humiliation or death, they refuse to answer Jesus. It's not that they did not know the answer, but if they said John's baptism was from heaven, meaning God, it would not only convict them of disobedience, but also of their failure to recognize Jesus as the Messiah whom John pointed to. The other alternative would, would incite the people to anger who held John as a prophet. So in their refusal to answer, once again they reject Jesus as Messiah. Once again we can hear the echo, we do not want this man to be king over us. With their lack of an answer, Jesus dismisses their question. Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus will not play their game. Instead, he tells a parable. The parable of the tenants is really something of a short biographical sketch of God's design for Jesus and Israel. Its allegory is very clear and we easily identify the characters. He went on to tell the people this parable a, a man planted a vineyard rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time the language here would bring to mind Isaiah 5 as a background the first verse verses read I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard my loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside he dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with choicest vines he built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. He then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. In our parable, the, the man, the landowner, represents God the Father. He brought Israel into being and, and rented it to farmers or tenants who represent all the religious leaders. At harvest time he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent them away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. This is an indictment of not only the leaders, but the nation. Time after time, God in his great patience and love sent his prophets to Israel to call the people to repentance and obey obedience but the people rejected them beat them and even killed them the prophet Zechariah not, not the one who wrote the book but was stoned in the courts is one example and the prophet Uriah of Jeremiah 26 is another then the owner of the vineyard said what shall I do I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. The words actually read, I will send my beloved son. And obviously this represents Christ Jesus, the son of God. And we want to shout out, no, don't, don't. Don't you know what they will do? Yes. Yes, he did know. Just as the Father knew in sending his Son, and Jesus knew it as his purpose. Shortly before that last Passover in John 12:27, we read Jesus saying, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Now we should recognize a very special relationship between God and Israel. In the beginning, God worked with Gentiles. Most of Genesis uh, records history before Israel existed. But at some point, God decided, decided to choose a specific people to work with. In Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, we read, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. For reasons known only to God, he placed his love on them and they became something of a, a microcosm of the larger world. They would be an example as in 1 Corinthians 10, where where Paul twice calls the Old Testament an example for the New Testament believers. They were to be an example to the world of a holy nation devoted to God. When Jesus came, he said, "But uh, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And we see this exclusiveness in Jesus' own words in Matthew 15:24. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. As one author wrote, but how will they do this? In other words, what does it mean to be a holy nation? But what does that mean? Israel is meant to faithfully represent God by how they live as a community of love, justice, and worship of Yahweh alone. This is what the law is all about. Israel is not chosen for salvation, but for a purpose. They are called to display who Yahweh is to all the nations, so that all would come to know and worship the one true God. Salvation to the nations was not plan B. It was God's mission all along. They were blessed beyond measure and equipped to accomplish this mission. Romans 10, 4 and 5, Paul laments Israel's unbelief and he notes, Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah who is God over all forever praised. Amen. They had all the blessings, yet continually failed in their mission and relationship with God. Now Jesus enters Jerusalem, which represented the nation, to inspect and judge and claim what is rightfully his. The parable continues. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. This was exactly what the religious leaders were plotting. Their ungratefulness had turned into rebellion and treason of the highest the world will ever know, the execution of the Son of God. As another author sees this parable as Jesus' parable as a microcosm of the ancient and developing story of the relationship between God and Israel. Jesus concludes the parable. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. A sad end is that of destruction. In both Matthew's and Mark's account, it is added, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. This pronouncement of judgment would fall upon the nation in 70 A.D. Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed, the people captured or driven into exile. It would be the tragic end of the Jewish dispensation, the end of the microcosm. Paul, writing about 15 years prior to this destruction, understood it was coming. In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, he wrote, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. With the microcosm gone, so came the end of the exclusiveness of God's mission to the Jew first. Now a new Israel, a spiritual Israel, the Israel of God, would arise in the vineyard would be inclusive, consisting of believing Jew and Gentile, one people called Christian. Matthew 21:41 includes these words in the parable's uh, conclusion. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to others and who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. The idea of losing the vineyard to other tenants was shocking. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. The people understood the ominous words of Jesus. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus continues by quoting Psalm 118, 22 and 23. Professor David Wenheim of Trinity College, England notes, The saying about the stone supplements the parable and, in a sense, completes it, since the one rejected and killed, as the parable describes, was in due course to be the risen Lord and the cornerstone in the saved people of God. The stone rejected, meaning Christ rejected, killed and cast aside in the end will become the chosen cornerstone of God's plan of salvation. One commentator wrote, As a blind man who stumbles and falls over a stone and injures himself against it, so those who through their unbelief and falseness of heart are spiritually blind will find Jesus' a stumbling block in their path, and so in a spiritual sense they will fall and come to grief. But whoever persists in that state of unbelief until the time of grace expired will be completely crushed by the judgment of God, carried out by the Son, and will be pulverized like the one on whom a tremendous rock crashes down. The section ends then in verse 19. The teachers of the law and the chief priest looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them but they were afraid of the people. The religious leaders understood that the parable was a scathing indictment against them and consequently the nation in failing to produce fruit or to be obedient to God. The words of the prophet Jeremiah must have echoed in their ears. Many shepherds will ruin my vineyard and trample down my field. They will turn my pleasant field into a desolate wasteland. Weep and wail, you shepherds. Roll in the dust, you you leaders of the flock, for your time to be slaughtered has come, and you will fall like the best of the rams. The shepherds will have nowhere to flee, the leaders of the flock, no place to escape. The religious leaders would have grabbed Jesus then and there and stoned him if it were not for the crowd of people who were supporting him and clinging to his words. The Pharisees, teachers of the law, the elders all knew the right answers, but they refused to acknowledge Jesus' authority as God's authority. They suffered the worst type of blindness, a blindness that refuses to see. They had become so blind to the truth that they hated Jesus and sought to kill him rather than acknowledge him as Lord and submit to him. You know, this, this blindness, this type of blindness is, is not far from any of us. As an example, if, if, if you can look at President Trump and Nancy Pelosi, and you can't point to one good thing either has done, that's what happens. One becomes so angry that they lose all perspective and nothing the person does can possibly be right or good. For Jesus, not even the miracles of healing lepers and giving sight to the blind or or raising the dead could be seen and acknowledged. The religious leaders rejected Jesus and soon would have him crucified. But in that rejection, they sealed their own fate. Death and destruction would fall upon the nation. Multitudes would be slain and the city and temple would be left in ruins. The vineyard would be taken away and given to others. And the end of the age would close the book on the Jewish microcosm. But because it was a microcosm, it speaks of something grander, larger. It speaks of the world. The vineyard has become the world. And God expects people to produce fruit or worship and good works, compassion and justice. His ministers and people ought to proclaim his gospel message until he returns. Sadly, there are many churches that have gone astray. The tenants are not producing fruit, but propagating false teachings and twisting the word of God for their own purposes. There will come a day when Jesus does return as king, this time on a stallion, to to establish his kingdom. Then there will be judgment meted out, severe and just, from which there will be no escape. But there will also be rewards bestowed to the sound of well done, good and faithful servants. The Old Testament and Israel were examples for us on this side of the cross and the empty tomb to warn us not to repeat their sin and folly. So the question for us today is this do I believe in Jesus as the Son of God and Savior? Do I accept His Word as authoritative? If I do, then have I obeyed it? Have I confessed and repented of my sins and been baptized? Am I trusting in Christ's life and death alone for my salvation? These are questions of paramount importance because they carry eternal consequences. The Gospels give us the Gospel message, the good news of salvation. These things are written that you may have life. Christ offers life abundant and life eternal. However, to reject the author of salvation. To refuse to trust Christ as one Savior is to stand condemned. The Apostle John writes those very familiar words, but do we believe them? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But it goes on. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. What if it were today that Christ returned? What if this was the last week of your life? If you have never truly called upon Jesus to be your Savior, do it today. For those who have faith in Christ know the blessedness of being united and preserved in Him. Take to heart the last verses of Jude and praise Him. To Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forever all more. Amen. And amen. May God be praised. At this time we will prepare to share in the Lord's table.